Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November 12th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the United Nations Climate Conference, uh, COP27, that is being held in the North African state of Egypt in Sharm el-Sheikh. France has announced the liquidation of Operation Burkhan, although Paris will maintain a military presence in several West African states. Uganda is still battling an outbreak of Ebola virus disease, and investigations continue into the circumstances surrounding the airplane crash where 19 people lost their lives in uh, the Republic of Tanzania. In the second hour, we look in detail at the COP27 summit where Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley delivered an address. We also examine the attempts uh, by the United States to influence media outlets in Africa. Some of the African artworks stolen during colonialism are being returned to the continent. And finally, we review the prophetic speech by Malcolm X, Ballots or Bullets, which was given in Detroit in April of 1964. We're examining this speech in light of the recent midterm elections amid a highly fractured political system in the United States. These and other stories will be brought to you during the course of our program. And uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Orchestra Makasi with Most Fun Fun and Remy Ongala. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was a selection of tunes uh, from uh, various uh, artists from East and Central Africa. Uh, that was the Orchestra Makasi uh, with Mofanfan. And uh, closing out in the last few tracks with uh, Remy Ongala of Tanzania. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November 12th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Right now, we want to go into our Pan-African Newswire report. And uh, these are some, some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. The headline, of course, uh, deals uh, with the activities in Sharm el-Sheikh in North African state of Egypt, where the United Nations Climate Summit is now taking place. Hundreds of activists called on industrialized nations to pay for the impact of climate change and to speed up the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy earlier today. And the largest protests yet at the United Nations Climate Summit in Egypt. Uh, protests have mostly been muted at the conference, known as COP27, uh, which is taking place in the seaside resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. Activists blamed high costs of travel, accommodation, and restrictions in the isolated city for limiting the numbers of demonstrators. The protesters marched through the conference's blue zone which is considered U.N. territory and ruled by international law. They chanted, sang, and danced in the area not far from where climate talks and negotiations are taking place. The protest came at the end of the first week of the two-week summit, uh, when typically protest actions at climate summits are at its largest. Uh, pay for loss and damage now. Uh, on Friday, uh, said uh, Friday in Bani, a Nigerian environmental activist who was leading a group of protesters, many protesters alongside several vulnerable countries have called for the loss and damage payments or financing to help pay for the climate-related harms to be central to negotiations. Africa is crying and its peoples are dying, and Bani told the international press. Protesters also call for drastic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions being pumped into the atmosphere. Uh, emissions continue to rise, but scientists say the amount of heat-trapping gases needs to be almost half by the end of this decade, by 2030, to meet uh, the temperature-limited goals of the Paris Climate Accord. Activists chanted, keep it in the ground, in reference to their rejection of the continued extraction of fossil fuels. On Friday, some activists heckled U.S. President Joe Biden's speech and raised an orange banner that read, People versus Fuels, before being removed. One of the activists, Jacob Johns, had his access to the conference revoked as a result. It's just a great way to silence indigenous voices nationally and globally, said Johns, a member of the Akimolo, Otam, and Hopi nations in the United States. The 39-year-old veteran activist said he went to the speech to protest the U.S. new program to encourage more corporate purchases of carbon offsets, a scheme for companies to get credits to pollute by contributing to the removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And what really angered the veteran activist was that Biden mentioned indigenous knowledge and efforts in his speech. 
It was just a really good big slap in the face to climate action, John said. Saturday's rallies uh, earlier today also focused on human and gender rights, with protesters saying both are linked to climate justice and call for an end to a crackdown on rights and environmental activists, especially in developing nations. Activists call for the release of a jail Egyptian pro-democracy activist, Alai Abdel Fattah, whose case grabbed international attention during the conference. His sister, Sanaa Saif, was in the conference campaigning for him to walk free. One day, I hope my brother will be able to stand here with you and raise his voice, as he has always done for the repressed, the criminalized, the marginalized, and the ignored, said Assad Rahman, the executive director of War on Want, a London-based anti-poverty charity. He was reading Saif's remarks. Abdel Fattah's family said he had escalated his hunger strike and stopped drinking water to coincide with the start of the conference. Just then, they have been demanding a word, demanding word on his condition at the prison, and their concerns grew on Thursday after authorities told them he was undergoing an undefined medical intervention and blocked the lawyer from seeing him. And uh, you can read uh, more on the COP27 uh, climate conference uh, on the Pan-African Newswire website. In other news, uh, the situation involving the French government, which has announced that it is dissolving the Operation Barkhane that operated in several uh, Sahel countries in West Africa. French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Wednesday the official end of the French military operation Barkhane in the Sahel region in Africa. We do not intend to engage without a time limit, uh, Macron said in Toulon, France. However, he added that military support from France to the African states in the Sahel region will continue in another form. Since 2014, France has deployed around 5,100 troops to the G5 Sahel countries. Uh, they are Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. Under the Operation Burkhan, the goal was to help the G5 maintain control of their territories and prevent the region from becoming a haven for jihadist groups. France will hold discussions with its African partners on the formal format of its military support and on the current mission of French military bases in the Sahel and West Africa. In February, Macron announced that France's withdrawal of troops from Mali would take four to six months. Between 2,500 and 3,000 French soldiers were in the African country. France will continue this fight with neighboring countries of Sahel, regions such as the Gulf of Guinea and Niger, the president said. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in the East African uh, state of uh, Uganda, uh, they are still battling an Ebola virus disease uh, outbreak. And, of course, uh, there's more information about uh, this outbreak and the efforts of the Ugandan uh, government, the health ministry. Uh, They are saying that in all, 53 people have died, including children, out of more than 135 cases. That's according to the latest Ugandan health ministry figures. And uh, in Cassandra Impoverished, uh, Kasebi uh, Village, uh, everyone is afraid, uh, according uh, to eyewitnesses on the scene. 
Ebola is not airborne. It spreads through bodily fluids uh, with common symptoms being fever, vomiting, bleeding, and diarrhea. And uh, finally, in Tanzania and East Africa as well, the authorities on Tuesday said the wreckage of a plane that crashed in Lake Victoria has been pulled out of the water following the country's deadliest air accident in decades. Nineteen people died when the precision airplane went down on Sunday as it approached the northwestern city of Bakuba, prompting a frantic rescue effort by emergency workers, fishermen, and residents to pluck people to safety from the largely submerged aircraft. We have completely removed the plane out of water, and now the professional investigation into the cause of the accident is underway. The Tanzania Airport authorities, the TAA, said in a statement, Bukuba Airport will also be reopened soon to allow aviation operations to continue as usual. Video footage or broadcasts on local media showed the plane twisted wreckage being pulled up by a crane, its nose collapsing towards the ground before it was deposited in a patch of grass. Precision Air, a publicly listed company and Tanzania's largest private carrier, said the aircraft was an ATR-42-500 manufactured by Toulouse-based Franco-Italian firm ATR and had 39 passengers, including an infant, and four crew members on board. 24 survived out of the 43 people aboard flight PW494 from the financial capital of Dar es Salaam. A government spokesperson uh, said investigators from ATR were expected in Tanzania uh, five days ago to join their counterparts from the Precision Air and the TAA who arrived in Lakeside City uh, six days ago. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. And since then, uh, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to our website, uh, just go to the URL, uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, uh, we'll take a break, and of course, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, permit me to thank you, Your Excellency, President El-Sisi, for your wonderful hospitality and for all courtesies extended to us. And I want to congratulate Simon Steele, a son of the Caribbean, of whom we're very proud in his new role as Executive Director. I came here to say a few things, but the chorus 
that we've had from this stage has been clear. I don't need to repeat that we have the power of choice. Every speaker on this platform has done that. I don't need to repeat that this is the cop that needs action. All of us as a chorus have said that. I don't need to repeat the horror and the devastation wrecked upon this earth over the course of the last 12 months since we met in Glasgow. Whether the apocalyptic floods in Pakistan or the heat waves from Europe to China or indeed in the last few days in my own region the devastation caused in Belize by Tropical Storm Lisa or the torrential floods a few days ago in St. Lucia. We don't need to repeat it because the picture spoke a thousand words earlier. But what we do need to do is to understand why why we are not moving any further. 1.5 to stay alive cannot be that mantra. And I take no pride in being associated with having to repeat it over and over and over. We have the collective capacity to transform. We're in the country that built pyramids. We know what it is to remove slavery from our civilization. We know what it is to be able to find a vaccine within two years when a pandemic hits us. We know what it is to put a man on the moon and now we put in Rover on Mars. We know what it is. But the simple political will that is necessary not just to come here and make promises but to deliver on them and to make a definable difference in the lives of the people who we have a responsibility to serve seems still not to be capable of being produced. I ask us how many more and how much more must happen. And I say so because there is no simplicity in it. We get it. I come from a small island state that has high ambition but that is not able to deliver on that high ambition because the global industrial strategy that we have has fault lines in it. Our ability to access electric cars or our ability to access batteries or photovoltaic panels are constrained by those countries that have a dominant presence and can produce for themselves but the global south remains at the mercy of the global north on these issues but it isn't only in that we heard Al Gore just now speak about the difference in the cost of capital to those of us in the global south and I ask us how many more people must speak before those of us who have the capacity to instruct our directors at the World Bank, is that called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development only for the 20th century? At the IMF, which has, at least has been trying more than the World Bank, how many more countries must falter?
particularly in a world that is now suffering the consequences of war and inflation, and countries therefore are unable to meet the challenges of finding the necessary resources to finance their way to net zero. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. The global north borrows between interest rates of between 1 to 4%. The global south are 14%. And then we wonder why the just energy partnerships are not working. Similarly, we ask ourselves if countries that want to finance their way to net zero and want to do the right thing can't get the critical supplies, will they not have to rely again on natural gas as that clean bridge? This is the ball reality. And we have come here to ask us to open our minds to different possibilities. We believe that we have a plan. We believe that there can be the establishment of a climate mitigation trust that unlocks $5 trillion of private sector savings if we can summon the will to use the SDRs, 500 billion of SDRs, special drawing rights, in a way that unlocks the private sector capital. We believe that that requires a change in the attitude of Congress. Because the agreement that establishes the International Monetary Fund requires 85% to change that agreement. And if the United States government has 17% of the quota, then it can't be done, Mr. Gore, without your Congress. Similarly, we accept that there was and must be a commitment to unlocking concessional funding for climate vulnerable countries. There is no way that developing countries who have been graduated can fight this battle without access to concessional funding. We heard it on this stage from my, the head of my old alma mater at LSE. We believe that it is critical that we address the issue of loss and damage. The talk must come to an end. And I'd like to salute Denmark and Belgium and Scotland for their own modest ways of trying to accept the precepts and principles of loss and damage as critical and as morally just. But for loss and damage to work, we believe that it can't only be an issue of asking state parties to do the right thing, although they must. But we believe that the non-state actors and the stakeholders, the oil and gas companies, and those who facilitate them, need to be brought into a special convocation between now and COP28. How do companies make $200 billion in profits in the last three months and not expect to contribute at least 10 cents in every dollar of profit to a loss and damage fund. This is what our people expect. And I ask us, as we reflect on what a loss and damage fund can look like and who should access it, 
that we convene a special convocation that doesn't only involve state parties, but non-state actors such as the same companies. We believe as well that the time has come for the introduction of natural disaster and pandemic clauses in our debt instruments. I have said that if Barbados is hit tomorrow, because we have natural disaster clauses, God forbid if we are hit tomorrow, we unlock 18% of GDP over the next two years. Because what we do is effectively put a pause on all of our debt and put it at the end for two years and put it at the end and we pay back that money at the end but what we get is the flexibility in the first two years to address issues of damage and loss and finally we believe that the multilateral development banks have to reform yes it is time for us to revisit Bretton Woods yes it is time for us to remember that those countries who sit in this room today did not exist at the time that the Bretton Woods institutions were formed for the most part. And therefore we have not seen, we have not been heard sufficiently. And if we are therefore to rise to the occasion to play our part to stop the tragic loss of life that we have seen on these screens and the impact on livelihoods that we are feeling across our countries, then there needs to be a new deal with respect to the Bretton Woods institutions. And we need to ensure that they have a different view to their risk appetite, that we look at the SDRs, and that we look at other innovative ways to expand the lending that is available from billions to trillions. My friends, the time is running out on us. And yes, we have the power of choice. When asked what should he do when he became president of South Africa, should he pursue a path of vengeance or should he seek to build a state, Nelson Mandela chose to be able to build a state and to keep a country together. He chose blessings instead of curse because he believed that it would make a defining difference. When given the choice of how to treat to post-war Europe, President Truman settled the Marshall Plan that made the definable difference to the countries that were responsible, yes, for the destruction of so much and for the loss of life of so many. But in spite of that, they, choose, they chose to rise above it. I ask us today, what will our choice be? We have the power to act or the power to remain passive and do nothing. I pray that we will leave Egypt with a clear understanding that the things that are facing us today are all interconnected. I thank President Al-Sisi for his comments that there needs to be peace. Because countries like ours continue to suffer as a result of a war that we have no part of and a war that we want to see come to an end. Our people on this earth deserve better. And what is more, our leaders know better. Because while many of us may not have been alive during the great wars, the consequences of those wars still live with us.
and we have the capacity to choose differently. I ask the people of the world and not just the leaders, therefore, to hold us accountable and to ask us to act in your name to save this earth and to save the people of this earth. The choice is ours. What will you do? What will you choose to save? Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was um, Prime Minister of Barbados, Motley, and of course, uh, Mia Motley, uh, talking about some of the uh, pressing issues uh, that is faced uh, by uh, the developing countries. And uh, right now, we want to move into another segment that deals with the increasing attempts uh, by uh, Western imperialist countries to influence uh, media outlets on the African continent. Uh, Let's listen in. Propaganda under disguise. According to a report published in August, the United States is penetrating, has been penetrating South African media through the National Endowment for Democracy and other organizations and foundations. The report said the project was an example of U.S. state-sponsored efforts to influence public opinion abroad in ways favorable to its own selfish interests. Who is behind the project? How long had been such operations going on? And how has the project influenced public opinion in the region so far? I was joined by two authors of the report from Toronto, Ajit Singh, journalist and member of the international campaign No Code War, and Roscoe Palm, director of the Pan-African Institute for Socialism, joining us from Shanghai. Mr. Singh, let me go to you. The report that you published is uh, entitled How the United States Has Penetrated South African Media, in which you detail how the U.S. state with its private sector partners have captured and continue to capture influential South African media. You called this a U.S. imperial project. Who exactly are the main players here and what's their hidden agenda? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, the main player uh, at the heart of oh, the United States international influence operations is an organization called the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, this was an organization created in 1983 under the Reagan administration. And in the words of its founders, it was created to take over the public face of the U.S. Um, influence operations around the world from the CIA, to do openly what the CIA used to do covertly. Um, And this is because uh, during the 60s and 70s, the reputation of the CIA and its covert operations became tarnished. Um, And so the NED, uh, on a yearly basis, issues thousands of grants in over 100 countries around the world. Uh, Between 2010 and uh, 2020, this past decade, it's issued over a billion dollars in grants. And um, a lot of these grants go to uh, media organizations, a range of civil society organizations, but what we focused on were its funding towards media organizations, particularly in South Africa, where it has been financing since 2020, 
one of the major South African newspapers, Mail and Guardian, uh, and has increasingly been working with private foundations, namely uh, Luminate, which is a private foundation headed by Pierre Omidyar, who founded the Intercept investigative journalism website, um, and Open Society Foundations, which is headed by George Soros. And so uh, this sort of public-private partnership is increasingly uh, playing a role in media development, uh, particularly in the Global South. Hmm. Roscoe, um, you claim in that report that this is a project in hidden, in plain sight. What do you mean, and what's the pattern of operation and scope in influencing public opinion? Well, um, the NED's operation um, is vast, and as Ajita said, it's been in operation since 1983. Um, for example, it, it, uh, in South Africa, um, it has um, funded many of the major publications as, as well as smaller projects. Uh, we have found at least 24 publications that have been funded by one or more of the major funders that regularly partner with the U.S. government. And this is a massive footprint in terms of influencing. Um, its uh, role is to increase the U.S. soft power in South Africa and beyond into Africa. Um, so, um, for example, um, it does... Um, uh, it has funded um, the local chapter of the Media Institute of Southern African Swaziland, the Institute of the Advance of Journalism in South Africa, and many other institutes. Uh, the goal of this is to, um, is to uh, elevate a pro-US and a pro-Western narrative that often comes at the cost of African narratives and African, the African agenda for development. There's a myriad of organizations ostensibly for journalism training or for media development, cooperation, some at a global scale, some at a national level, regional level. And uh, uh, Roscoe, um, you, I mean, both of you call it an alphabet soup of acronyms. What function do these so-called media organizations serve? Well, as I said, they, they serve to push a narrative and then also to place people in key positions that sit on um, various, within this influencing network. So uh, we've, we found that there's in fact a revolving door of people who work for organizations that are funded by NED and other organizations within this influence, uh, network of influence and U.S. State Department organizations. So uh, at the time of writing the piece, we said that there were two people, two um, uh, editors who went on to work, uh, former editors-in-chief of the Mail and Guardian, who've gone to work for Western um, government-supported organizations. We've since found two more, and at least 15 people who passed through the fellowship program um, run by Amon Bungani, the investigative journalist unit, have been directly tied to U.S. government organizations and programs. So uh, this is building, um, it, it's building an influence network, it's building people that they can then place in institutions uh, around the world to then cultivate um, further um, influence and to curate the narratives, mm -hmm. in, especially in this particular moment in history when the West and the U.S. is just decoupling from the rest of the world. 
So the main question here, Ajit, uh, is uh, how long, as you mentioned, the uh, NED was founded in 1983, so the operation has been ongoing for a long time, but how long specifically have the operations been going on in South Africa, to your knowledge, to your investigation? I'm uh, directing this question to Ajit. And how powerful has the project proven to be in shaping local public opinion? Well, we uncovered that uh, South Africa, uh, shortly after the NED was founded in 1983, uh, in, the, in its first and second year of, of operation, uh, it was active in financing media in South Africa. At the time, in their own words, according to U.S. internal documents, uh, they sought to, quote, counter strong Marxist campaigns in South Africa. It's important to note that this is South Africa at the time of apartheid. And the United States wasn't primarily interested in, in funding and financing media to, to promote an anti-apartheid message, but they were interested in promoting an anti-Marxist message. This is at the time of the Cold War. And uh, it's illustrative of how the United States, the criteria for what it finances isn't, uh, unfortunately, uh, necessarily human rights and democracy, but it's a geopolitical interest. Um, and today, uh, it appears that it's ratcheting up and returning to these sort of Cold War tactics as global tensions rise with China and Russia uh, to uh, be able to promote certain narratives and shape public opinion. I think we're, we're not yet able to say what impact it's going to have. It's unfolding at the moment, mm. and it's, it's going to continue to unfold as evidenced by the billions of dollars they're putting into their uh, uh, international media initiatives, as I'd outlined uh, previously. Mm -hmm. um, Rascal, now for the ordinary people who are watching the news, who are reading the newspapers, what could they do? I mean, what are, for instance, some of the common characteristics among these media that have been captured, and how could ordinary consumers tell whether they're being fed uh, with a secret agenda? You know, here we have to rely on um, the common sense and uh, the intuition of ordinary people who read the media. And um, so what we need to do actually is to build some, uh, is, is to counter the propaganda with facts. For example, one of the uh, one of the constant themes in these publications is the demonization of state actors that. Um, uh, don't necessarily fit into the U.S. and uh, the global North idea of hegemony. So one of the things we constantly hear about in Africa is that uh, China um, in, is uh, involved in debt trapping um, certain states in Africa, when in fact that's just simply not true. Uh, China over the last 20 years has cancelled more than three and a half billion U.S. dollars in debt and refinanced. $15 billion um, across, uh, across Africa. Uh, right at the moment, the IMF is negotiating with uh, Ghana for a $3 billion um, dollar credit uh, facility. Um, and on the table um, is, as usual with these international financial institutions, uh, vital social programs and infrastructure projects, like education. So in terms of Africa, what we're not looking for is, um, uh, is, is uh, um, and more debt traps. We want partnerships. So we have to understand that, um, that the, the explicit demonization of particular state actors is done so 
with the express purpose of um, drawing an iron curtain down once again mm. and bringing on the new Cold War, which is what the global north knows how to do. Mm. It's taking us to the brink, and we have to find um, other voices and other channels to counter this um, explicitly harmful narrative of the global north. Roscoe, um, you talk about you know, the money being spent to promote U.S. interest and to increase U.S. soft power. Every country does that. What makes this penetration project so special or different, Roscoe? The problem with this project is that it's so intimately tied with um, the U.S. State Department and the CIA. Uh, as Ajit says, the NED was set up to do overtly what the CIA could no longer do covertly, um, as it suffered tremendous reputational damage for fomenting coups and uh, regime change all over the global south. Um, so in terms of these, uh, this influencing network hiding in plain sight, um, there is a, a pattern where um, the, the the U.S. and the West can act upon Africa and the global south in ways that uh, other nations just simply cannot and do not. If this was an operation, let's say, of any other nation, for example, in China, um, we would hear all about, uh, we would hear about how scandalous it would be. But the U.S. and uh, these actors, the CIA and the NED, uh, has for years acted with impunity in terms of its um, network of influence. Mm -hmm. Finally, Ajit, uh, the NED claims that it's dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. For those who genuinely believe in democracy, how could you convince them that the NED is actually doing the right opposite across the world? Well, it comes down to this. Democracy can't be imposed from outside by foreign countries. Uh, it's, for, it's fostered by the people of a given nation. Um, and we've seen time and time again uh, that the United States, through entities like the NED, uh, repeatedly will finance violent anti-democratic forces around the world. Unfortunately, the criteria for their funding is not whether a group is particularly democratic or humanitarian. It's whether it serves their geopolitical interests in a particular country. Uh, they fund groups who oppose political forces that they don't like, uh, and those groups can exist on a spectrum of uh, across the political spectrum, unfortunately. Uh, and so if we just look country after country uh, where the NED uh, and the United States uh, financial footprint goes, uh, the track record just isn't consistent with these so-called uh, okay. democratic ideals. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Ajit Singh, journalist with uh, Grey Zone, and uh, Roscoe Pan, director of the Pan-African Institute for Socialism, joining us from Toronto and Shanghai, respectively. And that's it for this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle in Beijing. On behalf of the whole team, thanks for watching. You've got the point. Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was a report uh, dealing uh, with uh, the current situation around the world. And of course, the Western influence uh, on African media is a major attempt to subvert uh, the right to self-determination and sovereignty 
among the African people. And uh, right now we want to move into a report about uh, the acquisition of stolen art from Germany uh, by the government of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Uh, originally uh, was in the Benin Kingdom of the late uh, 19th century, uh, which was destroyed uh, by uh, the British. Let's listen uh, to uh, this report on African art stolen uh, by European imperialism. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. The Benin bronzes, arguably some of Africa's prized treasures, looted by European colonial powers from the Benin Kingdom in southern Nigeria, have begun their long journey back home. Germany recently returned two of the priceless artifacts known as the Benin bronzes to Nigeria. After reaching a political agreement, they could see the return of some 1,100 Benin bronzes currently in Germany's museums. It will be the single largest repatriation of stolen African artifacts so far. France, also in November of 2021, returned 26 treasures that were looted from Benin, fulfilling a promise made by President Emmanuel Macron to restore a lost part of Africa's heritage. Britain, Belgium and the Netherlands have also received requests from African countries to return looted treasures. And last year, Nigeria requested its antiquities back from the British Museum in London, which has some 900 Benin bronzes in its collection. The request for repatriation dates back to independence in the 1960s, but they have been ignored and denied for decades. So are they finally being heard? And could this be a start of a process that could see the return of the remaining looted artifacts? We will find out in this week's program. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome. To talk Africa. Well, joining me now is Professor Abba Isa Tijani, the Director, Nigeria Commission for Museums and Monuments is joining us from Abuja. Thank you, Professor Tijani, for joining us on the program. Now, Germany earlier this year signed an agreement to hand over the ownership of the historical Benin bronzes to Nigeria. Do help us understand the political agreement between Germany and Nigeria that could soon see hundreds more artifacts return to Nigeria. Yes, uh, Nigeria and Germany signed a political agreement uh, for the return of 1,130 Benin bronzes. And at present, uh, we have been uh, signing the agreement for the physical return of the objects uh, with the regional museums. And uh, we have uh, done that so far with some of the regional museums for the return of the objects, yes. But we do understand that so far only two of the renowned artifacts were returned, were given back to Nigeria. And you talk about, uh, you know, some 1,130 uh, should be given to Nigeria. I mean, why only two at this point? What is the future plan? Well, the idea of the two uh, Benin bronzes that were actually handed over to Nigeria is just uh, symbolic because at the signing of the agreement, the two objects were symbolically handed over to us uh, to take with us back to Nigeria. 
but of course, you know, after signing the agreement, uh, there is the need also to prepare these objects, uh, you know, pack them and package them, uh, and then ship them to Nigeria. And we are planning to do that in phases, not because we don't want them to return all at the same time, but because of the security implications uh, and also the condition of the objects, uh, we need to do them in phases. So we are planning for more returns before the end of the year, uh, at least... Uh, you know, a couple of objects will return before the end of the year. Right. This must be a very interesting and exciting time, you know, for uh, Nigeria. What is the significance of the art and the importance particularly of its return? The significance of this uh, Benin bronzes to Nigeria is that we are having our objects back which were illegally taken out of Nigeria. Uh, and uh, it shows also on the side of those that are returning these objects, particularly, for example, Germany, that they are doing the right thing. You know, Nigeria uh, you know, was not a colony of Germany, yet Germany that purchased these objects in the open market is now ready to return these objects back to Nigeria, shows that the keeping of these objects that are stolen is unethical and immoral, and therefore, uh, Germany is taking the step to show the whole world that these objects need to be returned to Nigeria. And we equally call on other countries to take leave from Germany so that all the Benin bronzes mm -hmm. that are part of the 1897 loot should be returned to Nigeria. Well, there's always been a, a question, uh, Professor Tijani, about what actually would happen uh, to the artifacts when they arrive in Africa. European countries have previously, you know, argued that uh, African countries do not have adequate storage for the artifacts as one of the reasons for holding on to the African artifacts. Where will the art be stored once in Nigeria? And does the government have the capacity for adequate and protected storage? Well, that's uh, the excuses uh, given by many museums across the world. Uh, in order to uh, not to return, you know, objects that have been illegally uh, taken out of their uh, countries of origin. Uh, we do have the capacity. Nigeria, for example, uh, we have uh, 53 national museums spread across the country. And uh, we are also building new museums. And I, I'm speaking to you now. We have plans to build additional storage facilities that will house these objects when they are returned, and new galleries also to exhibit the, these objects. So we do have the capacity and we do have the space, and uh, that should not be an excuse. And of course, many of these countries are also uh, willing to support uh, uh, our staff here uh, in the museums in areas of capacity building, in areas of also collaborative research, uh, and digitization of our objects. So definitely uh, many museums are willing to do that. So we have the facilities, we have the you know, space to do that. And let me say that also these objects have been here uh, in Nigeria before they were you know, uh, stolen. So they, they have been here for many years, decades, and uh, they survived you know, uh, all different conditions and they have been here. So why will it be now? that we, people would say we don't have the capacity. We do have, we cherish our cultural heritage, we love our artifacts,
and definitely we will provide all the facilities that is required for the storage and exhibition of these artifacts. So, so have the European museums, though, you know, talked about uh, being willing to assist in maybe uh, construction of museums for the artifacts, for instance? Well, there are many, uh, you know, uh, uh, museums in Europe uh, that are willing to raise funds for, uh, you know, sup to support uh, the uh, putting in place of infrastructure for museums and exhibition areas. And we are also collaborating with such, uh, you know, museums, and we look forward because it's, uh, it's the right thing to do because after having these objects uh, for decades in their countries, in their possession, and I think uh, it is right for them to support us, also build our capacity, build our infrastructure, instead of saying that we don't have such facilities. And I think it's a collaborative thing. Museums of today are global institutions, mm -hmm. and there's no way that museums will exist uh, on their own. So there is the need for this uh, collaborative efforts, and we look forward to any support from different museums and different countries. And definitely, it's a mutual thing. So I want to go back very briefly um, on the agreement uh, that uh, Nigeria signed with Germany because the deal will also see almost a third of the artifacts remaining in German museums on loan while the rest will be returned to Nigeria starting you know, later in the year. What does it mean to be on loan? You see, these artifacts have been in, uh, away in Nigeria for decades in those countries, in those museums. And uh, we have a lot of Africans, a lot of Nigerians that are in those countries as well. So we are saying that, you know, if these artifacts will be returned to Nigeria, of course, if all of them will return to Nigeria, of course, we are creating a vacuum as well. You know, what about the Nigerians and other African countries and even the Europeans that are really, uh, you know, uh, supporting us, supporting uh, our cultural heritage that we would love to see these objects and would love to be visiting museums to see these objects. And uh, we thought that it's a good idea for these objects, some of them, to remain in those countries, in those museums, so that they can be ambassadors of Nigeria, mm -hmm. so that our people in, in those countries will also have some kind of sense of belongings to see that these objects are there for them to see and appreciate, and their children that are growing up, they can go to these museums and see all these objects are from our country. So I, I think it's good to have some of these objects on display there. But I think the question of saying that if a third of the, you know, uh, of the total number are going to remain is not true. We are the one to determine mm -hmm. how many objects are going to remain, and uh, just a small percentage of the uh, number that will remain in those museums on loan. And uh, at any point in time, we want, we can have those objects back. And uh, this is not something new. That is what museums have been doing. And of course, even uh, at present, we have so many objects on loan in many museums across the world. And there are also objects that have been committed for traveling exhibition with other countries as well. So this is a global practice of museums across the world. So it's not something new to give objects on loan. Uh, and I think I not need us to understand that. All right, because um, we're seeing a lot of the effort now getting fruit after over 100 years of, of trying to get the bronzes back to the continent. And you have personal experience here because in 2021, you did help negotiate the return of Benin bronzes from two British universities, the University of Aberdeen and Jesus College in Cambridge. 
tell us about your process. What was it like? Did you meet much objection? Um, you know, how did you make much progress on that? It's not just uh, the National Commission for Museums and Monuments or just Nigeria, but I think it's a global effort because uh, there are a lot of things that uh, you know play a role in this uh, context because. Uh, uh, the, the role of the social media as well. There is uh, also a campaign by many Africans across the world, you know, to see that uh, you know the African objects are returned uh, to, 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 to to Africa. And of course, there are a lot of also uh, uh, people in those uh, countries, uh, citizens of those countries, that see that their countries and their museums should return. Uh, uh, objects that have been stolen in, uh, in, in Africa. Professional uh, touch is also there to show that you know institutions like museums that are professional institutions need to uh, play and stay within the ethics uh, of the profession. And I think it's ethical for them to collect you know things that are right and display things that are right. So anything that is illegally you know uh, uh, collected. Uh, and in the possession of, of, of museums is unethical and therefore it should not be displayed and I think this uh, played a very important role uh, in this and I think uh, uh, all these aspects play uh, this role and I think our approach also to negotiate for mutual benefits you know for collaborative benefit and to also to continue to partner in research and joint exhibition and traveling exhibitions also play the role because uh, most of these museums that have large, you know, collections of these looted objects uh, keep them in the storage and therefore only few objects are on display. So if these objects should return to us and we will give some of them on loan, just, uh, they will not miss anything because these few will now remain on exhibition and uh, they will not be able to, you know, have this, uh, you know, uh, protest from different parts uh, of the communities that they are keeping objects uh, against the will of those countries that are illegally possessed. So now they have the moral latitude to display these objects that are on, uh, legally on law. And so many across the continent are now wondering what is next. Is this the beginning of the return of all stolen artifacts to the continent? Because Nigeria has also requested other antiquities back from the museum, uh, from the British Museum, for instance, in London. And it has about 900 uh, Benin bronzes in its collection. What is the progress on that request and what next? Well, we are making effort. We have given uh, you know, a formal letter to the British Museum trustees and uh, uh, they are looking at our request. Uh, and I think uh, the British Museum, even though there is an act of parliament of the British Museum that is stopping them from repatriating, I think uh, they, they have now reached the boundary now to to sort of assess their own uh, position and see that uh, they start negotiating uh, with us to, for the return of these objects because many of the uh, museums across the world are doing it and the British Museum cannot be on its own. Even some museums uh, in, uh, in Britain are uh, returning you know, the uh, looted objects. So therefore, uh, the British Museum I think will follow suit. It's just a matter of time. Uh, I think uh, we'll see in the next uh, few months uh, what they will say as well.
Professor Tijani, thank you very much. We're now going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by a panel of experts to further expound on this issue. Stay with us. Welcome back. And uh, that segment uh, dealt uh, with the return of stolen African art, uh, given the example of uh, Benin art uh, being in German uh, museums. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And um, this is our regular Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast Program. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, that was uh, the illustrious uh, Hater Brooks with the uh, hit record, uh, Two Box Boogie. And um, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, for Saturday, uh, November 12th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to uh, look back uh, to uh, April 12th of 1964 for a speech that was delivered uh, here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from, by Malcolm X, uh, the title, Ballots or Bullets. In the speech, he talks about the widening and fractured uh, American electoral political system and uh, the role of the African-American people, if organized and if militant. Um, Today, uh, as a result of the recent midterm elections in the United States, we can see a similar uh, situation where the control of the House of Representatives and the Senate has still not been declared uh, some uh, four days after uh, the polls closed on November the 8th. Let's go back, listen to Malcolm X uh, from 1964 at King Solomon Baptist Church on the west side of Detroit. Mr. Moderator, Reverend Cleve, brothers and sisters, and friends, and I see some enemies. I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we had an audience this large and didn't realize that there were some enemies present. This afternoon, we want to talk about the ballot or the bullet. The ballot or the bullet explains itself. But before we get into it, since this is the year of the ballot or the bullet, I would like to clarify some things that refer to me personally concerning my own personal position. I'm still a Muslim. That is, my religion is still Islam. My religion is still Islam. I still credit Mr. Muhammad for what I know and what I am. He's the one who opened my eyes. And At present, I'm the minister of the newly founded uh, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which has its offices in the Teresa Hotel, right in the heart of Harlem. That's the Black Belt in New York City. And when we realize that Adam Clayton Powell is a Christian minister, he's the, he has Abyssinia Baptist Church, but at the same time, he's more famous for his political struggling. And Dr. King is a Christian minister in Atlanta, from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia, but he's become more famous for being involved in the civil rights struggle. There's another in New York, Reverend Galamison. I don't know if you've heard of him out here. He's a Christian minister from Brooklyn, but has become famous for his fight against the segregated school system in Brooklyn. Reverend Cleve, right here, is a Christian minister here in Detroit. He's the head of the Freedom Now Party. All of these are Christian ministers. All of, these are, 
All of these are Christian ministers, but they don't come to us as Christian ministers. They come to us as fighters in some other category. I'm a Muslim minister. The same as they are Christian ministers, I'm a Muslim minister. And I don't believe in fighting today in any one front, but on all fronts. In fact, I'm a black nationalist freedom fighter. Islam is my religion, but I believe my religion is my personal business. It governs my personal life, my personal morals, and my religious philosophy is personal between me and the God in whom I believe, just as the religious philosophy of these others is between them and the God in whom they believe. And this is best this way. Were we to come out here discussing religion, we'd have too many differences from the outstart, and we could never get together. So today, though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic, and social philosophy is black nationalism. You and I... As I say, if we bring up religion, we'll have differences, we'll have arguments, we'll never be able to get together. But if we keep our religion at home, keep our religion in the closet, keep our religion between ourselves and our God, but when we come out here, we have a fight that's common to all of us against the enemy who is common to all of us. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. The, the, time, the time when white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. Okay. By the same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro into the community, get you and me to support him so he can use him to lead us astray, those days are long gone. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that if you and I are going to live in a black community, and that's where we're going to live, because as soon as you move into one of their, as soon as you move out of the black community into their community, it's missed for a period of time, but they're gone, and you're right there all by yourself. We must, we must understand the politics of our community, and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives. And until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into uh, supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education. 
to open our people's eyes, make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we get ready to cast our ballot, that ballot will be, for, uh, will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. And the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never find, you can't open up a black store in a white community, white man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He's, he got sense enough to look out for himself. And you, you don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community. Control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses uh, under the pretext that you want to integrate. No, you're out of your mind. The political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer, the community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com to complain about poor housing in a run-down community. Why, you run it down yourself when you take it down. And you and I are in a double trap because not only do we lose by taking our money someplace else and spending it, when we try and spend it in our own community, we're trapped because we haven't had sense enough to set up stores and control the businesses of our community. The man who's controlling the stores in our community is a man who doesn't look like we do. He's a man who doesn't even live in the community. So you and I, even when we try and spend our money in the block where we live or the area where we live, we're spending it with a man who, when the sun goes down, takes that basket full of money in another part of the town. So we're trapped, trapped, double trapped, triple trapped. Anywhere we go, we find that we're trapped. And every kind of solution that someone comes up with is just another trap. But the political and economic philosophy of black nationalism, the economic philosophy of black nationalism shows our people the importance of setting up these little stores and developing them and expanding them into larger operations. Woolworth didn't start out big like they are today. They started out with a dime store and expanded and expanded and then expanded until today they're all over the country and all over the world and they're getting some of everybody's money. Now this is what you and I and General Motors the same way didn't start out like it is. It started out just a little rat race type operation and it expanded and expanded until today is where it is right now. And you and I have to make a start. And the best place to start is right in the community where we live.
so our people not only have to be uh, re-educated to the importance of supporting black business, but the black man himself has to be uh, made aware of the importance of going into business. And once you and I go into business, we own and operate at least the businesses in our community, what we will be doing is developing a situation wherein we will actually be able to create employment for the people in the community. And once you can create some, pl I mean, some employment in the community where you live, it will eliminate the necessity of you and me having to act ignorantly and disgracefully boycotting and picketing some cracker someplace else trying to beg him for a job. Anytime you have to rely upon your enemy for a job, you're in bad shape. When you had, he is your enemy. Anytime, you wouldn't be in this country if some enemy hadn't kidnapped you and brought you here. On the other hand, some of you think you came here on the Mayflower. So as you can see, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, today, this afternoon, it's not our intention to discuss religion. Uh, we, we're going to forget religion. If we bring up religion, we'll be in an argument. And the best way to uh, keep away from arguments and differences, as I said earlier, put your religion at home, in the closet. Keep it between you and your God. Because if it hasn't done anything more for you, then it has. You need to forget it anyway. Whether you are whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag, in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation. All of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today, it's time to stop singing and start swinging. You can't sing up on freedom, but you can swing up on some freedom. Cassius Clay can sing, but singing didn't help him to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Swinging helped him.
But this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself do philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can stay in any kind of civic organization that you belong to and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can be an atheist and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. This is a philosophy that eliminates the necessity for division and argument. Because if you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you're not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you've got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down action. They'll have you sitting in everywhere. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. When we look at other parts of this earth upon which we live, we find that black, brown, red, and yellow people in Africa and Asia are getting their independence. They're not getting it by singing, We Shall Overcome. No, they're getting it through nationalism. It is nationalism that brought about the independence of the people in Asia. Every nation in Asia gained its independence through the philosophy of nationalism. Every nation on the African continent that has gotten its independence brought it about through the philosophy of nationalism. And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. America is just as much a colonial power as England ever was. America is just as much a colonial power as France ever was. In fact, America is more so a colonial power than they, because she's a hypocritical colonial power behind it. What is 20th, what, what do you call second-class citizenship? Why, that's colonization. Second-class citizenship is nothing but 20th century slavery. How are you going to tell me you're a second-class citizen? They don't have second-class citizenship in any other government on this earth. They just have slaves and people who are free. Well, this country is a hypocrite. 
They try and make you think they set you free by calling you a second-class citizen. No, you're nothing but a 20th century slave. Just as it took nationalism to move, to remove colonialism from Asia and Africa, it'll take black nationalism today to remove colonialism from the backs and the minds of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country. And 1964 looks like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet. Why does it look like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet? Because Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long. And they're fed up. They've become disenchanted. They've become disillusioned. They've become dissatisfied. And all of this has built up frustrations in the black community that makes the black community throughout America today more explosive than all of the atomic bombs the Russians can ever invent. Whenever you got a racial powder keg sitting in your lap, you're in more trouble than if you had an atomic powder keg sitting in your lap. When a racial powder keg goes off, it doesn't care who, it knocks out the way. Understand this, it's dangerous. And in 1964, this seems to be the year. Because what can the white man use now to fool us? After he put down that march on Washington, and you see all through that now, he tricked you, had you marching down to Washington. Yes, had you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another, another dead man named George Washington, singing, We Shall Overcome. He made a chump out of it. He made a fool out of it. He made you think you were going somewhere and you end up going nowhere but to between Lincoln and Washington. So today our people are disillusioned. They've become disenchanted. They've become dissatisfied. And in their frustrations they want action. You'll see this young black man, this new generation, Asking for the book, ballot or the book. That old Uncle Tom action is outdated. The young generation don't want to hear anything about the odds are against us. What do we care about odds? When this country here was first being founded, there were 13 colonies. The, the whites were colonized. They were fed up with this taxation without representation. So some of them stood up and said, liberty or death. Though I went to a white school over here in Mason, Michigan, the white man made the mistake of letting me read his history books. He made the mistake of teaching me that Patrick Henry was a patriot and George Washington wasn't nothing non-violent about old Pat or George Washington. Liberty or death was what brought about the freedom of whites in this country from the English. They didn't care about the arts, why they faced the wrath of the entire British Empire. And in those days they used to say that the British Empire was so vast and so powerful when the sun, the sun would never set on it. 
This is how big it was. Yet these 13 little scrawny states, tired of taxation without representation, tired of being exploited and, and oppressed and degraded, told that big British empire, liberty or death. And here you have 22 million Afro-American black people today catching more hell than Patrick Henry ever saw. I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about us. They don't want to hear you, old Uncle Tom, handkerchief head, talking about the uh, honor. No. This is a new generation. If they're going to draft these young black men. And send them over to Korea or South Vietnam to face 800 million Chinese. <laughs> if you're not afraid of those odds, you shouldn't be afraid of these odds. Why does this loom to be such an explosive political year? Because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You never see them until election time. You can't blame them until election time. They're going to come in with false promises. And as they make these false promises, they're going to feed our frustrations. And this will only serve to make matters worse. I'm no politician. I'm not even a student of politics. I'm not a re Republican, nor a Democrat, nor an American, and got sense enough to know it. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who has, who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. And the generation that's coming up now can see it. And I'm not afraid to say it. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you black, you were born in jail. In the north as well as the south. Stop talking about the south. Long as you south of the long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south.
call Governor Wallace a Dixie governor. Romney is a Dixie governor. Twenty-two million black victims of Americanism are waking up and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And that, that, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. You're the one who has that power. You can keep Johnson in Washington, D.C., or you can send him back to his Texas cotton patch. You're the one who sent Kennedy to Washington. You're the one who put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. The, when you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. A political chump. In Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, there are 257 who are Democrats. Only 177 are Republicans. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you back controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. <laughs> Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. And what kind of alibi do they come up with? They try and pass the buck to the Dixiecrats. Now back during the days when you were blind, deaf, and dumb, ignorant, politically immature, naturally you went along with that. But today as your eyes come open and you develop political maturity, you're able to see and think for yourself. And you can see that a Dixiecrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. You look at the structure of the uh, government that controls this country. It's controlled by 16 senatorial committees and 20 congressional committees. Of the 16 senatorial committees that run the government, 
ten of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. Of the twenty congressional committees that run the government, twelve of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. And they're going to tell you and me that the South lost the war. in the hands of a government of segregationists, racists, white supremacists, who belong to the Democratic Party but disguise themselves as Dixocrats. A Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat. Whoever runs the Democrats is also the father of the Dixocrats. And the father of all of them is sitting in the White House. You got a president who's nothing but a southern segregationist. From the state of Texas, they'll lynch you in Texas as quick as they'll lynch you in Mississippi. Only in, in Texas, they lynch you with a Texas accent. In Mississippi, they lynch you with a Mississippi accent. And the first thing the cracker does when he comes in power, he takes all the Negro leaders and invites them for a coffee. To show that he's all right. And those Uncle Toms can't pass up the coffee. the coffee table telling you and me that this man is all right because he's from the south and since he's from the south he can deal with the south and look at the logic that they're using what about Eastland he's from the south make him the president he can, if, if Johnson is a good man because he's from Texas and, it, and being from Texas well, if, if Johnson is a good man because he's from Texas and, it, and being from Texas will enable him to deal with the South, Eastland can deal with the South better than Johnson. Oh, I say, you've been misled. You've been had. You've been took. a couple of weeks ago while the senators were filibustering and I noticed in the back of the Senate a huge map and on this map it showed the distribution of Negroes in America and surprisingly the same senators that were involved in the filibuster were from the states where there were the most Negroes why were they filibustering the civil rights legislation because the civil rights legislation is supposed to guarantee voting rights to Negroes in those states and those senators from those states know that if the Negroes in those states can vote, those senators are down the drain. The representatives of those states go down the drain. And in the Constitution of this country, it has a stipulation wherein whenever the rights, the voting rights of people in a certain district are violated, then the representative who rep who's from that particular district, according to the Constitution, is supposed to be expelled from the Congress. Now, if this particular aspect of the Constitution was enforced, why, you wouldn't have a cracker in Washington, D.C.
When you expel the Dixocrat, you're expelling the Democrat. When you destroy the power of the Dixocrat, you're destroying the power, power of the Democratic Party. So how in the world can the Democratic Party in the South actually side with you in sincerity when all of its power is based in the, in the South? These Northern Democrats are in cahoots with the Southern Democrats. They're playing a giant con game, a political con game. You know how it goes. One of, the, one of them comes to you and make believe he's for you. And he's in cahoots with the other one that's not for you. Why? Because neither one of them is for you. But they got to make you a go with one of them or the other. So this is a con game. And this is what they've been doing with you and me all these years. First thing Johnson got off the plane when he became president, he asked, where's Dickie? You know who Dickie is? Dickie is old Southern cracker Richard, Ru Richard Russell. Look here. Yes. Lyndon D. Johnson's best friend is the one who is ahead, who's heading the forces that are filibustering civil rights legislation. You tell me how in the hell is he going to be Johnson's best friend? Johnson be his friend and your friend too. No, that man is too tricky. Especially if his friend is still old Dicky. <laughs> Whenever the Negroes keep the Democrats in power, they're keeping the Dixocrats in power. This is true. A vote for a Democrat is nothing but a vote for a Dixocrat. I know you don't like me saying that, but I 